When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. They started realizing that you could take human scent off almost any type of evidence. You're giving examples of training a dog to detect a scent on the tip of a Q-tip. Weapons of mass destruction canines that are trying to detect certain types of chemical traces that may be prevalent in an area. Human remains that have been buried since the Civil War. It sounds like there's a fairly lengthy interview and probationary period for some of these dogs. If you're not applying adequate health care to these dogs, they're going to get sick and they're going to go down. What a great tool our canine friends have become for us. We've got two special guests this episode. Jason Parrish and Wynne Warren are from the FBI's canine program. This episode, we're going to go into a little-known corner of the FBI that involves canines. And we'll talk about dogs today and the FBI's relationship with canines throughout the United States that all help the mission of the Bureau and help keep us safe. So let's dig right into our questions. And as my listeners know, we always attempt to put a human face on FBI employees. So let's start out with a very basic question, which usually turns out to be quite interesting in terms of the answers. Let's start with Jason. Jason, I'm going to ask you to tell us about your journey into the FBI and where you were prior to joining the Bureau and what you've been assigned since joining the FBI. Yes, I grew up in the FBI with my dad as a special agent. He'd served 32 years within the Bureau, and I joined in 2004 as a special agent, was assigned to the Portland and Baltimore field offices, where I worked mostly counterterrorism, white-collar crime, and bank robbery, sprinkled in there a little bit. And then I uh, decided to join ERT as a collateral duty in 2009 in the Baltimore field office and did a lot of work at uh, Dover Air Force Base, observing autopsies of American citizens that were killed overseas. Then I decided to join the Laboratory Division Evidence Response Team Unit in 2012, where I was assigned as a supervisory special agent with training and training all of the evidence response team members throughout the nation. Then I was assigned to operations, and I've deployed operationally to scenes such as the Orlando Pulse attack, the Las Vegas attack, the... um, Chattanooga shooting, the San Bernardino shooting, Mm. and uh, I've traveled the nation doing responses like that. And I I was assigned to the Evidence Response Team Unit Forensic Canine Consulting Program in roughly around 2018. And uh, I was just a normal agent, and I had to take on the task of learning what canines can do and what their responsibilities are and, and what they're capable of. And I've learned quite a bit in the last three years, and a lot of that has come from Wynn Warren and uh, our other canine handlers that we have within the evidence response team unit. Boy, some takeaways just from describing your journey into the Bureau, Jason. uh, You must be at least the fourth or fifth guest we've had that I call legacy FBI employees, someone in their family, the dad, mom, uncle, brother, um, served in the Bureau as well, and that's pretty neat. Yes, it, uh, it seems to like it's come a lot more popular with my generation. I've met a lot of them as well. Yeah, and then the other thing I take away, and I think that our listeners really should understand, is when we're all watching some tragedy play out on television news, some crime scene, some crisis, a bomb, a mass attack, I think, you know, people see the FBI jackets out there and they don't realize that in many cases, 
it's the same FBI specialists that have been deployed to assist that local field office. And it's someone like yourself um, that's seeing the same kinds of tragedy over and over again. And I just want to thank you and your, your colleagues for doing that because it's not just a different team every time that we're seeing respond. It's often the same specialists with all the experience they bring to the table. Just want to thank you for that. So I've got another question for you, Jason. Were you always a dog guy? Were you, did you have a dog at home when you started really getting into canines? I've, I've had pet dogs, but I've never had a working dog. So I've been learning about canines since 2018 and uh, I've crammed a lot into that time frame. Uh, when let's hear about your path into the bureau, where you've been and, and what you've been doing. Okay. Well, my name is Wynn Warren. I'm a forensic canine operations specialist. I just celebrated my 30th anniversary. Uh, hard to believe that a, a guy coming from a small town like Hickory, North Carolina could end up serving basically a, an entire career working for the FBI. I had no, uh, explanation to how I ended up here. I just, I did. And it's been a fantastic journey. I've worked a, a, a lot of cases over, over the course of my years to include Oklahoma City, uh, the Unabom, Unabomber investigation, uh, went to, went to the U.S. Embassy bombings in Nairobi, uh, worked the D.C. Sniper case, uh, Centennial Park bombing uh, with Eric Rudolph, and uh, also responded to 9-11. Um, I joined a, the evidence response team in 2005, Coming over to ERTU, I worked with a, another colleague of mine, Rex Stockham, to start up a canine program. And once we got that going, uh, we've since moved on and worked on many investigations to include numerous child abductions, a lot of uh, human remain searches over the years. And uh, it's it's been quite a ride and, and an enjoyable one over the years. And I'm glad to be here. Yeah, particularly when you get to be a part of the getting in on the ground floor and building a program and refining it. I think that's particularly satisfying professionally. So let's go even deeper into the history of the FBI's canine program. And maybe Jason, you could get us up to speed about where the program was and where it's headed. As you know, I retired a while back from the Bureau. We had a a bomb dog in the Miami field office when I was down there. Tell us, where's the program been and how is it changed and what's it going to look like in the future? Yeah, so in in 2005, as Wynn said, Rex Stockham and himself started building this program with bloodhounds in mind with an explosives, out of the explosives unit is where this started. And it was based on the fact that they could take human scent off of bomb fragments and then have bloodhounds trail the subject from the crime scene or get into the subject's neighborhood and trail the subject within his own neighborhood. Um, it built out of that to where they started realizing that you could take human scent off almost any type of evidence. Uh, you could get a cartridge case or you could get a knife or clothing, pull human scent off of that item, and then have the bloodhound trail from a starting location. And we can explain that in further detail as we get into it. But um, basically, that was the, the start of the program was having bloodhounds trail human scent off of subjects. They, they determined that, you know, with child and missing child abductions or serial rapists or homicide victims, they, they were needing another asset. So they started looking at building in cadaver canines with that as well. So they would have the human scent bloodhound trail the subject or trail the victim to a certain location. Then they start thinking that maybe the, the cadaver is there, the human remains are there. They would pull a cadaver dog out of the, the truck and then have the cadaver canine work that field and hopefully locate the human remains. The management decided, you know, that that, that what was working, it was working, but it wasn't working as well and efficiently as it could. So what they started looking at doing was starting using local law enforcement, state law enforcement, and search and rescue teams that have these canines already, and then train them to work FBI investigations. And so we kind of went away from having dogs ourselves and moving towards having local lo- local assets work for us because they're already there in the neighborhood. They know the neighborhood. They have the canines. So we started taking on the responsibility of training these canines and getting them up to speed to where we wanted to use them. Um, There's just a little bit of a difference between how they were using their canines and how we use our canines. They were using their, their canines, you know, I'd like to describe it as more of a blunt object, a blunt tool, like a hammer, and we would come in and say, hey, can you refine this and do it this way? 
and start using it more as a precise scalpel type technique. And so we would in- integrate what we knew and how we worked FBI investigations and kind of take their asset that they already have and make it more um, comprehensive and more accurate for what we wanted it to do. Yeah, sounds like an evolution of the program. And then clarify for us whether or not there are any onboard FBI dogs versus what you're now describing, which sounds like a very sophisticated kind of outsourcing with training attached to non-FBI dogs. Am I getting that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. We're, we're using it more as like a task force situation where we're using our local assets and, and building them in. As the Bureau as a whole, we have a, a policy out there that we have only three types of canines within the Bureau at this moment. The FBI police have their explosive detection canines. The hostage rescue team has their tactical apprehension canines. And then the Victim Services Division has their crisis response canines, which are much more like therapy canines, therapy dogs. Uh, much more trained than therapy canines, though, I like to point, point that out. Um, and the, just recently, we had the opportunity to start looking at uh, electronic device detection canines or media canines. Um, that's a growing field that's out there. And we're starting to, we as the lab are starting to look at how we can use those and possibly train those within the Bureau and, and kind of do a a startup program with that and see if that's going to work for us. And with those dogs that are proprietary to the Bureau, you mentioned those three categories. So that sounded like proprietary dogs belonging to the Bureau. Do you have any interaction with with those handlers, those FBI handlers and FBI canines? Yeah, being, being part of the Bureau and, and part of the canine program, it, it's canine is such a small industry and we, we have met with them. We've talked to them. Uh, they've provided us information. We've provided them information. But um, they're very spe- specialized, so we don't have a, a interact every day, but we do interact with them on occasion. Got it. So you've got my attention here with the various capabilities these days of different kinds of dogs and the different training that goes into giving them different capabilities. You mentioned even high-tech uh, media, electronic media dogs. Run through that for us. What kind of dogs are there out there in terms of their various capabilities? Okay. Hey, Frank, this is Wynn. I, I'd like to say that we the number of dogs that we work with currently are the cadaver canines, right? So our goal is to, to get them to a threshold, get these dogs trained to a threshold where we're able to utilize them to go find and, and recover the remains or, or bodies of subjects that were of victims that we're looking for. And on average, our cases are five to 10 years old. So uh, these dogs need to go through a, a regimen of training to get them to where we need them to be. Um, as Jason had mentioned, the electronic media dogs, that's that's a new skill set. Uh, trained very similar. You know, we're training, these dogs are trained on odor, uh, and, and they're very disciplined to what we're looking for specifically um, in our investigations. Um, then you have the bloodhounds. The bloodhounds are uh, the tools that we've got a lot of state and locals around the United States that have these, that have these hounds that are readily available to assist with uh, the various types of investigations, whether they're they're child abductions or a bombing or serial rapes, these types of uh, uh, offenders that we may be looking for, and it gives us a good opportunity to, to 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 train them to the way that we were we were working our dogs is focusing on abductor odor. Uh, a lot of the the folklore, the what's going on with with the way that we use the, the FBI dogs are. We're running these old trails, and that's not necessarily what we're doing. The misnomer is we're going out and we're running a three-month-old trail. You know, what we're doing is we're trying to put the dogs in places that they can be successful. So through through a use of geographic location checks and basically choke points where these people can enter or exit various areas of the community or where the crime occurred, that's where we're trying to put the dogs into a position to be successful. And we have had a lot of success with that um, over the years. You also are looking at a number of tactical dogs that are being used by various police departments, uh, apprehension dogs, uh, weapons of mass destruction canines that are trying to detect certain types of chemical traces that may be prevalent in an area uh, to go on with various private industries of agriculture and, and bed bugs. I mean, the list goes on and on. A dog's nose can be trained to to basically find whatever it is that you want to, what you're looking for. Um, but what is that odor that we're looking for? What is the scent that we're looking for? And it's it's putting the dogs in, the, in a position to be successful is ultimately the goal in canine work. 
And so to kind of break this down, it sounds like you've got this massive Rolodex, this phone directory. So if you need this kind of dog in this region of the country, you reach out and then you make an offer. And the offer might be, hey, we're going to train your dog kind of the FBI way. And if you don't mind, we'd like to have your dog available for our work when we come calling. Is Do I have that right? And where do you find your dogs? Yeah, so Frank, that's correct. What we do is um, a lot of it has been word of mouth. And over the, the past years, uh, we've developed a, a great relationship with a lot of law enforcement agencies around the United States. Um, and developing in these relationships, uh, basically, it's we want to know who you know right? We want to bring these dog teams in. We want to know what they're capable of. And we're going to run them through a series of, of different types of uh, lesson plans that we have developed, whether it's a basic to an advanced training, uh, to see what their capabilities are. They take those capabilities that we train them, they take them back to their police departments, and they're using the techniques that we're, that we're instructing back at their agency. And they're having success at it. So it's good that we're able to share that partnership with these other law enforcement agencies that they get something out of it too. Mm. Um, but also we have that rapport with them that we can call them and say, uh, we would like to use your services uh, on a particular operation, depending on whether it's in California or West Virginia or Pennsylvania. You know, we have those relationships with, with uh, various agencies for whatever it is specifically that we're doing. I'm going to break here to share something new and different with you. What would you do if a singular moment changed your life forever. This is actually happening is a weekly podcast from Wondery that features extraordinary true stories of moments that changed absolutely everything for ordinary people. These riveting stories are told in first person so you can experience it through their eyes. You'll hear from a woman who heads out for a quick bike ride in the Swiss Alps and finds herself lost in a dark, icy unknown or a woman who went to Maui in search of a healer, but instead endured a harrowing ordeal as she went missing for 17 days in a rainforest. Every week you'll hear a story even more surprising than the last. We've all had powerful moments in our lives that have given us the feeling of nothing is ever going to be the same. Well, This Is Actually Happening explores these moments head on. These immersive gripping stories will have you on the edge of your seat waiting to hear what will happen next. I enjoy hearing real stories from real people that make a real impact on our lives. Listen to the latest episode of This Is Actually Happening on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Wondery. Feel the story. Now back to our podcast. So how much of your work involves research related to training, staying up to speed on the latest thinking, findings, and best practices in the canine or working dog world? And is that something you bring to the table with these other departments? Yeah, so when we built this program, we kind of looked at it a different way than a lot of canine people look at it, is, is we started looking at how can we apply science to canines? Um, we have world-renowned experts at the FBI laboratory that know their field very well. And what we started doing was looking at, okay, how can we take uh, uh, an expert in chemistry and then pick apart the chemical smell of human remains and cadaver? And we started applying that to the canines and seeing where we can overlap and, and do that research that's, that's needed to go to court and testify to what the dog is doing. Um, because a lot of time people are just happy that the dog goes out there and finds somebody. But we wanted to know how they went out there and found somebody or what was behind the dog and, and what was into the training. How can we train better? So we started looking at how we can lower the threshold and, and what that chemical smell is. So we, we, we worked with the, the FBI lab and their experts and, and really picked it apart. And we started using the science that we were learning to apply to our dogs. And we saw a dramatic increase in how the dogs were were responding and how much better they were and quicker they were than the dogs that we've trained in the past and worked with in the past. Then we started looking at how we can share this information and that that comes into working with our our state and local partners and training them and then sharing that information that we learned. We've published articles on research that we've done, put it out there in the community so that they can benefit from things that we've learned. 
now we're looking at um, we participate in the, the, the NIST, National Institute for Standards and Technology. They have a dog and sensors subcommittee that we participate in and we help build the standards and the, the training records and certifications for dogs and canines that are working worldwide. We've been on that since it was early started. It started as SWIG Dog, the Scientific Working Group for Dogs and Orthogonal Detector Guidelines. That was an FBI-funded, DOJ-funded working group that was set to build canine standards across the world, and that transferred into NIST. So we've been really involved in this in the standards of um, canines since we got involved in this in 2005. And um, we were the only group to uh, start using those standards that Swig Dog put out, and we're hoping that the work that we're doing in NIST is going to help push that further out into the canine community and, and really standardize everything across the community. Jason, let me follow up on this because first of all, one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is I learn something every single time I do it. Even though I've had 25 years in the Bureau, things are constantly evolving. So a couple of things. You know, you've just taught me that the National Institute of Standards and Technology actually has developed standards for working dogs. I think that's astounding. And I almost see an analogy to an episode we did recently about Quantico and the FBI Academy. And we talked about the National Academy, which is where police executives go for more training to an even higher level of leadership training in police departments and agencies throughout the world. And it's almost, this almost sounds like, and I don't mean to be facetious, but it almost sounds like you've become kind of a National Academy for dogs and that you're taking them to the next level. So, so Wynn, tell us about something that I occasionally see in the news. And even if you're sitting at home watching cop shows, right, you see the dog being deployed and sometimes you scratch your head and wonder if the dog is alerting on something because the dog senses something or is the dog reacting to the handler sensing something. And this idea that a dog could cue off his or her handler Tell us how that works, how you avoid or mitigate the chance that the dog is reacting more to the handler than to actually his environment. A great question, um, Frank. And perfectly honest with you, to be perfectly honest, is it's cueing. Um, cueing, dogs are going to take the, the easiest path to be reinforcing at their reward. Um, it's something that we've that we see constantly in training. It doesn't matter whether it's a young dog or if it's an old dog. If you're teaching your dog obedience, it's gonna it's gonna solicit uh, different behaviors to get reinforced for whatever behavior you're trying to train. Whether it's a sit or a down or a bark or lift its paw, uh, to put it in perspective. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the uh, canine teams to. Understand that when you're reinforcing your canine and you're in the middle of a search, and whether you're working around a, a vehicle for a search or if you're working inside of a house, that you're not reaching for that reinforcement to reward your canine because the dog is looking for the delivery of that, of that reinforcer. The way that we mitigate this is by working these dog teams through single blind and double blind assessments, basically setting them up and giving them an opportunity to not necessarily fail, but show them what they're doing so that we can help them correct some type of reinforcer that they may be delivering to their canine to prevent that. We do, we don't, we do not want to cue on any type of search, any type of investigation. So what we're trying to do is just try to get the canine, time, the canine teams to mitigate that problem in the field to prevent any types of false positive responses that we get. Yeah, yeah. Eliminating the bias or handler bias. And as you say, it's a cueing that you're trying to eliminate. So it sounds like you're adding tremendous value with your program to the cadre of working dogs out there in law enforcement. What, what are some of the unique ways the FBI might handle a dog, say a bloodhound, um, that's different? You guys alluded to this earlier, but what, what's, what's evolved there? What's different about how an FBI handler or how the FBI might use a bloodhound? Yeah, so traditional bloodhound work has been used over the course of the past hundred plus years of getting the dogs to to trail, and they may trail as a number of dogs. Uh, if they're if they're prison dogs, 
uh, to go look for for an escaped prisoner. They may have multiple dogs, or if it's a single deputy on the side of the road that has uh, maybe made it went to go make a traffic stop and puts the bloodhound out after that person or that individual that that bailed out of a car. Okay, so yeah, those those work, and it's it's a it's a it's a great tool. These these dogs are very capable of doing that type of work. The difference of what we're doing though is we're we're focused on collecting abductor odor. We always focus on suspect odor, always, primarily because we have one opportunity to collect it before it is commingled with other scents. So uh, we want to collect that scent as soon as we can. We want to control it, and then we want to make sure that we're able to use it uh, the proper way through a, a series of running of positive and negative location checks. The, the way that we work these location checks is we're training the dog teams to recognize where your negative is. A negative response is when a canine refuses to travel a particular direction. It's also described in a lot of canine work as the dog went up to an intersection to make a turn and it gave them a negative, meaning that they came out of scent to make a left or a right or a different direction of travel along the course of the path. What we're trying to do is we're trying to get the canine teams to recognize these negative responses earlier instead of having to go on basically a long walk before we recognize that behavior. So the negative folklore has been that we're training the dogs to do it, and they they will do it after a certain amount of time and experience as the canines have gone through a series of these repetitions and training. But we're trying to get the teams to recognize that negative immediately instead of burning the dogs out and wasting their capability of, of trailing, establish a direction of travel. If it's a positive, shut the dog down, put the dog back in the vehicle, and then we move on to the next location check. Those location checks are identified by maps that we put together, a search strategy of where we're going to put the dogs in a place to be successful. Now, once we start getting a bunch of negatives, well, obviously that's not the targeted area. But when we get that positive we're getting pretty close to where we want to be. So we're going to let the dog give us a direction of travel and we're going to cut, start moving ahead. We're going to start uh, uh, drop trailing and moving the dogs a little bit forward and see whether, where this goes. Are we going to move a mile up the road and get a negative? Or are we going to move up a mile road, up a mile up the road and get another positive response going the same direction? Well, I just saved my dog from running 13 minutes of a trail on a mile trail uh, by doing that, just through two location checks. So it'll, it basically enables us to run multiple dogs through a sequence of location checks to give us a direction of travel and focus on areas that we need to be focusing on for searching. I see the distinction. And I, you're not only saving the energy of the dog, but the handler's energy and the other officers who are running and tracking along uh, with the dog. I know um, when we watch Hollywood scenes or television shows, there are tracking sessions that involve officers and dogs climbing fences and moving over hill and dale. But this makes a whole lot more sense uh, to me because it sounds so much more efficient. Um, one thing when, uh, or, or Jason, one thing that's always intrigued me is what kind of dogs and breeds make for the best law enforcement working dogs? And why is that? And are there certain dogs that are better at certain capabilities than others? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of questions to unpack in there. The, um, you know, the way we look at it, there's, there's no best dog and best breed for doing you know, overarching uh, goals. What you're looking is for certain certain characteristics of the dog and certain characteristics of the uh, the breed that will work in, in certain situations. So you know there's a, there's a Texas study that came out that a pug actually outperformed a German Shepherd with its olfactory senses. Um, so it was it's better at discriminating between different types of odors. So you know in some situations a pug might be better than a German Shepherd, but I don't think you want a, a pug going out there and biting someone you know, while they're uh, doing police work. So, so there are, there are certain situations where you're going to want certain types of dogs. Are you implying Jason that a pug can't multitask? <laughs> <laughs> I would never apply that a pug can't multitask. Okay. Okay. Um, no, but then there's also situations where you're going to have a dog working in a, a situation like an airport or a uh, baseball game or football game where you're not going to want a dog that's, you know, has a tendency to bite people. 
So there, there's a lot of ways that you have to look at what features and what attributes you want for that dog's specific job task that you're going to give him. Um, you know, hunting dogs and hunting breeds have been used for years to, to use their nose and to, to find things. But there's other things that we lo- have to look at is, is, does the dog have the nerve strength to work in the environment that we're going to put it into? Because when you have lights and sirens going and you have a bunch of people working or looking for a missing person, you don't want a dog that's going to be distracted by other people. Yeah. Um, you also want a dog that has a good physical stamina that can work all day long in, in the heat of uh, Arizona summer um, without, you know, giving it a lot of breaks, you know, and, and it's going to be based on, on each dog and each, um, each handler as to when, when the dog gets tired. You're also looking for a dog that has a high motivation for, for food or rewards or a toy. Because if it has that high motivation to work for food, it's going to work for you harder. It's going to work for you longer. Yeah. Um, and if it wants to play a lot, the dog's going to really want to work so it can get to that playtime. We're really particular for bloodhounds for trailing because they have such a great sense of, of smell for, for air scenting. One of the other dogs that we've worked with quite a bit is the Springer Spaniels. We love that breed. It, it works really well in the, the brush. You know, when you're looking for human remains out in the middle of a field, a Springer Spaniel is going to run right through a, a brush thicket and just keep going and keep working, whereas a lot of other dogs are going to look at that thicket and go, yeah, I don't want to go in there. I, I think that's a little too thick for me. It sounds like it sounds like there's a fairly lengthy interview and probationary period for some of these dogs uh, and figuring out if they have what it takes with all of the attributes and things that Jason mentioned, are there common reasons for dogs flunking out of police training? I assume some of those are the reverse of what Jason said, but are there things that you commonly see that cause a dog to not quite cut it? Yeah, you know, the different agencies have uh, their own particular reason or why they they may cut a particular canine from, from working for their agency. It could be as Jason had mentioned, the nerve strength, it could be their drive. It could be uh, the, the, the trainer's ability to communicate with that, that particular canine. But primarily, uh, one of the biggest factors can be age, right? A lot of health issues, some health issues are, are a big problem with, with uh, cutting canines. Um, even, even younger dogs end up with, with certain hip dysplasia, and it may have been a, just a bad, dis, uh, bad selection by a particular individual to bring that dog into the agency, it happens. And then you, you also have injuries. A big uh, thing that will put a bloodhound out of commission is bloat. Uh, that's where they're basically their stomach will wrap inside. They're a very deep chested dog and it, it will make the dogs extremely ill and it will kill them. It's interesting that some of the very same characteristics that might make a dog perfect for something might also mean that the breed has some downfalls and has some inherent issues that might make it less likely to survive in that environment. Uh, I, you know, I, I believe it's, it's a matter of maintenance of your canine, conditioning of your canine, mm-hmm. uh, proper work, uh, time spent with that dog, proper care. Uh, health is everything with these working dogs. If, you, if you're not applying adequate health care to these dogs, they're going to get sick and they're going to go down and you're going to limit your, your amount of time or, uh, ability to have them available to work for that particular agency. Yeah. Uh, so it, it all comes down to really healthcare with these dogs. Yeah. Yep. That's probably true for all of us to some degree. Hey, Jason, talk to, talk to us about victim recovery teams and well, first of all, what that means and then any common misperceptions that maybe the American public has about how dogs recover victims. Yeah. So we, uh, we started working with cadaver dogs, a while back, and, and we, we realized that the term cadaver canine didn't really encompass everything that they were capable of doing. So we really wanted to establish it as a victim recovery team um, and, and link the, the handler in as, as part of the dog. Um, the, the cadaver dogs are, t- are typically used to find human remains. Um, they're going to go out there and they're going to scent and smell for the, the, the scent of human decomposition. And that is, we've really not nailed down exactly what human de- decomposition smells like, but you know it when you get into it. And, and these dogs, they know it, and they, and they can find it really easily. We, we proof those victim recovery teams off of animal bones. So, you know, you can go out in a field and you can find bones everywhere. Dogs bring back bones even if they're not trained to. But, but what we do is we train cadaver canines to go out there and specifically find animal or human decomposition, not animal bones. And if we're training them correctly... 
we'll train that to a lower threshold so we can get the, the cadaver canines to find the scent of human decomposition on the tip of a Q-tip. Um, if we work it right, we can really get it down to where they can find really trace amounts of human decomposition. But then we also have to have them trained to where if they find a whole body, they're not overwhelmed by that scent. Because there's so much scent that's there that they could walk by it and say, this is way too much scent. This isn't the right thing I'm looking for. So there's that mix of, of getting the cadaver canine to find the lowest threshold of human decomposition and the highest threshold of human decomposition. And we've really had success getting them to a lower and lower threshold to, to locate human remains that have been buried since the Civil War or even Indian burial grounds. Um, and it's just a matter of knowing what you're doing and knowing where to put the dog and what the dog is telling you. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And, um, you know, typically we're used to working 10 to 15-year-old cases. We're, we're usually called out when we're, it's the, the last thing that we can do. You know, they've ran out of all other leads and they want to find the body that's been missing for 10, 15, 20 years on a 100-acre property. And um, we have to really look at that and we have to put a lot of effort into determining how we can best use this cadaver canine, um, especially as more of an investigative tool because you're not always going to go out there and have the, the human remains found. But you might take the cadaver canine into a house and it can find a saw that was used to cut up a person or it can find a shirt that the person was killed in and the shirt was thrown away, you know, over in the, this pile of shirts. So that, that's one of the things that we're, we really look at is how can we use it as an investigative tool and not just to go out there and find the remains. But one of the, you know, big misconceptions is you can put a cadaver canine into a house and it's going to tell you that a person was killed in a house. But if you think about it in your own house, how many places do you bleed in your house or do your kids have nosebleeds? And once that blood comes out of the human body, it starts decomposing. So there's a lot of things in your house that could have blood on it but not be a, a indicator of a, a homicide scene. So we have to look at what the dog is telling us. The dog's not wrong telling us that there's blood in the house and there's decomposition in the house. It's just wrong in the fact that it's not the human decomposition that we're looking for. So that's where you get into the other tools and the other techniques that we use. Um, another thing that we typically have is cadaver canines will hit on dumpsters or trash cans. And you think about how much stuff you throw away that has blood on it. Um, you get into, again, your kid's bloody noses. You're using your razor. You nick yourself. Your razor has blood on it. A lot of feminine products have blood on them. So the dog's telling you, yeah, there's, there's blood there, but you know, it can't tell you that whose blood it is. So that's where you get in and you got to start thinking about other things. The dog's just a presumptive test. It's not a confirmatory test like you would have at the lab. It's fascinating. I mean, the fact that you're giving examples of training a dog to detect a scent on the tip of a Q-tip uh, or find remains or elements of remains as old as the Civil War, it's just astonishing. And what a great tool our canine friends have become for us. When it comes time to make a decision about a dog retiring, is it kind of like a great athlete knowing when it's time to go and wanting to go out on top? How do you how do you consider that maybe this dog should take a break or it's time for the dog to go out of service? Are there certain retirement agents just where you see a kind of diminution of capability? Yeah. So we look at dogs, they'll, they'll, they can work up to about nine years. Once you start hitting that nine year mark, you're, you're realizing that uh, the old guy's got to retire or this old lady, we, you know, she, it's time for her to become a pet and not that working dog that's getting out in the, the vehicle every day and going out and running all those trails or searching the fields for, for various odors or whatever targeted odor you're, you're specifically looking for. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tough on some of the handlers to, 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 to start over again. And, but there's also that excitement, you know, you, you know that you're retiring. It may be your first dog. It may be your second or third. And you know, you know what, my next dog is going to be better. Mm. You keep thinking, can I, can I make the dog better than my last dog? And as a handler, you're always trying to learn what, what can I do differently? What, where can I improve my skills to make myself better? Not only as a handler, but also as a trainer and training my dog to make, to make it better. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard thing for, for a lot of these dog teams to, to retire. And you'll, you'll see, you'll see it maybe health related reasons again, like we had, we spoke earlier, or it could be 
Uh, just the the size of the dog. The dog's getting older. It's starting to put on a little bit more weight, so the conditioning is down. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what we're typically looking at when we're when we're ready to to close up shop on on an old dog and start a new one. Yeah, I think I've even seen scenarios where the handler just so happens to be reaching retirement age at the same time as dog is, and that's pretty cool too. When you see both the officer and the dog go out of service and fade off into retirement together, it's pretty neat. Let's take a quick break to cover a topic that I know is as important to my listeners as it is to me. When Simply Safe Home Security's founders, Chad and Eleanor Lawrence, designed their first security system in their kitchen, they did it for a very personal reason. Their friends had just had their home broken into. They were struggling to find a security system that was simple to set up and would make them feel safe again. You know my career has been dedicated to safety and security. And making people feel safe is what Simply Safe has been doing ever since that moment 15 years ago. A passion to protect people not only drives every engineering detail in its products, but it motivates every interaction with its customers. And the thing is, Simply Safe just makes it so easy. It takes about two minutes to customize a system on their website, simplysafe.com slash bureau. SimpliSafe has highly trained security experts ready whenever you need them, whether that's during a fire, a burglary, a medical emergency, or even just when you're setting up the system. There's always someone there who has your back to keep you safe and make sure you feel safe. As my listener, you can save 20% on your SimpliSafe security system and get your first month free when you sign up for interactive monitoring service. Just visit simplysafe.com slash bureau. B-U-R-E-A-U, to customize your system and start protecting your home and family. That's simplysafe.com slash bureau. This episode is sponsored by Helix Sleep. If you want to finally get a good night's sleep, go to helixsleep.com slash bureau. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match your body type and sleep preferences to a customized mattress to give you the best sleep of your life. A good night's sleep means a lot to me. And with Helix, you get a customized mattress, perfect for the way you sleep. Helix has soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down. Mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for a plus-size sleeper. And delivery and setup are fast and easy. Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. They're recommended by leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. There's a 10-year warranty, and you can try it out for 100 nights risk-free. Helix even has financing and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix offers up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows to listeners of my podcast at helixsleep.com slash bureau. Now let's return to our guest. Give us some success stories. You've taken us through some of the nuances of training and research capabilities, but Put that all together for us and give us one or two real life scenarios where things just came together in a really positive way. When you've got anything for us? Yeah. Um, back in 2012, uh, there was a, a little girl by the name of Jessica Ridgeway. Uh, she was abducted uh, just outside of her home. Um, and we, we deployed to that scene and uh, we didn't have really much to work off of as far as scent went. Um, they did have her backpack. Uh, we collected scent off of that. Um, and then uh, shortly after, a few days later, while we were on scene, her, some of her remains were located along a highway, unfortunately disposed inside of a trash bag. So we did collect scent directly from her remains and from the trash bag uh, that the offender used. Remember, I'm talking offender odor, right? So we, we no longer have our victim that we're looking for. We're looking for the killer. So we were able to collect that scent and identify those geographic location checks, as I had mentioned earlier. Through a series of location checks, we ran 33 location checks during that investigation. A lot of those location checks were negatives. We ended up not trailing anywhere. We had uh, multiple dogs that we were deploying, and uh, we ended up hitting one positive location check. I'll never forget, uh, we got the intersection shut down, 
And I'm thinking we're not going to go anywhere because I hadn't gone anywhere with one of these dogs through the entire search. And we ran a scent article off of the trash bag and the bloodhound took off. And there was no way I was going to stop that bloodhound from running that trail. You know, I had mentioned earlier, we want to establish a direction of travel and shut the dog down. Well, this happened to be one that we we decided to just go ahead and run this one out. I uh, went about a mile and a half down a road. And what we ended up doing is establishing a route that our subject frequented. So it wasn't an old trail. It wasn't three months old. It was a fairly fresh trail. Uh, it, maybe he had walked it. Maybe he, he frequents it. Maybe he rides his bike up and down it. Maybe he drives his car up and down it. I don't know. But I got a good direction of travel. And it ended up inside of the community. Uh, we ran a, a number of other location checks once we got into the community with hopes of identifying where our subject lived. Unfortunately, we ended up on the side of a hill and I was not able to get the hounds up to where the subject lived, but we were about 1,500 feet from his home. Uh, what that ended up doing, though, is it ended up shifting uh, the, a search area from the neighborhood canvas, which was immediately outside of Jessica's home. And we were able to meet with some of our other investigators and tell them what we had found, what, why we ended up where we ended up. And from there, they went through and they did what they do investigatively. They did the neighborhood canvas. Uh, later on, the subject had confessed to his mother. His mother called 911 and gave the confession that the remains of Jessica were uh, at her home and that the rest of her remains were recovered there. It ended up being a very successful trail. Did the, did the bloodhound lead us to the killer's home? Not necessarily, but it got us close, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that ultimately is the goal. Try to get, us, try to get the dogs to, to be used at an investigative level where we can, we can put the rest of the investigators. I mean, there, we have intelligent investigators out there on the streets. Let them do their work. Let the dogs do their work. And we, we ended up working together very well as a team. Uh, ended up with a very successful story in arresting the the. Yeah, it really seems like a partnership between what the dog's doing and what investigators are doing and marrying those up. Like you said, that's a great way that takes you into a neighborhood. Jason, anything similar in terms of success stories? Yeah, so so moving over into the cadaver world, we had uh, in 2003, there were seven women that went missing in New Britain, Connecticut. And uh, there was there's not a lot of leads to that. Um, the, the women had been missing for a while move forward to 2007 and some hunters were walking around in the, uh, in the woods in a field and they come across some, some human remains, some skull, I believe, and a couple other bone fragments. They get those bone fragments tested and they find out that it's three of the women from the seven that were missing. And the, um, turns out that they, they start looking at the subject that they, they acquired while they were doing the investigation and they get enough evidence to convict him on one of the missing women. They, uh, I believe there was blood and, and stuff in the car that was able to convict him of that, that death. Um, it was a nobody uh, conviction, so then they just have to go out and now find the remains of the, the other women. The investigators do their job over the eight, next eight years. There's a lot of work done, a lot of leads followed up, but none of the other human remains were found for those victims. Uh, it turned to 2015. They, they contact the Forensic Canine Program uh, as we were as we were on the way out, we had a single purpose cadaver dog, and we started looking at how we could help the case. Um, part of what we do is we establish search strategies um, to go in and look for human remains because most of the time when we're called, they tell us there's a missing person, there's a hundred acres, and they want a cadaver dog to search those hundred acres. Um, it's just not feasible. A cadaver dog can't work that much area. You know, it'd take them a month or so to get past that much area. So we, we look at how we can apply the other parts of the lab through, you know, historical data, you know, satellite imagery, statistics. We know person's not going to haul someone up a hill. They're going to go down a hill. We, we establish geology. How, how is the terrain geographically? We, we, we take all these things and we apply them to a search strategy. Um, we work with BAU on occasions to, to what the offender's known for. And we take all that and we put it into a search strategy. Um, on this case, we had an area that the investigators were telling us that they want us to look at this field where the, the three human remains were were found, the, the human remains from the three victims. 
And so we go out there and we, we apply all these, these techniques. We take our single purpose cadaver dog out there and the cadaver dog works the field. We put a GPS collar on her and she runs the entire field, works it. We get all the tracks back. She ends up identifying four locations that are of interest, um, giving us a final response, telling us she's got something. Um, then we got to go back and look at it and say, do we want to dig this up? Is there enough information for us? Can we get the warrant? Um, we get all that taken care of. We, we dig up the, uh, the spots where she hit, and turns out that uh, we find all four of the other victims' remains, along with some of the other remains from the three victims that we initially had found. Um, turns out around the same time, while the subject was um, in jail, He'd given a confession or said something to the fact that he had buried them in a, in a diamond-shaped pattern. We end up looking at our GPS data, and sure enough, the, the dog indicated on a diamond pattern, and that's where we found the human remains. Um, so that's just one way that we take the, uh, the whole encompassing strategy of the lab and use everything that we have at our assets and apply that to cadaver human remains searches. Yeah, it's all part of a puzzle, solving a mystery and then using every tool you can, in this case, canines. And so, Wynn and Jason, this has been a fun discussion. I think anyone who loves dogs is going to just really love this discussion and, and everything we've learned from the work and research that you two have been engaged in. Thank you, not only for being here, but for serving our nation, keeping us safe for as long as both of you have. We're glad you could be here. We want you to be safe while you're keeping us safe. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you, Frank. Thank you very much. Take care, guys. Thanks for joining us for episode one of the second season of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. You will not want to miss our next episode when we sit down with an FBI expert on how exposed we all are online. And we'll ask him the question, can we digitally disappear. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. The show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.